When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thinking Basketball Podcast, my name is Ben, welcome back. Today, something a little different, a unique kind of podcast in which I'm essentially going to take my old day job where we do a lot of research and we look at behaviors and we try to understand what people are doing and then we try to design a solution for them and an experience that they like better, that they use more, that they're willing to engage with more so on and so forth, and we're going to do that with the NBA. So this week, you may have noticed if you follow me on Twitter, I've been asking you lots of questions about your perspectives on things and what you would do to change things in the league if you could. But in addition to that, folks on Twitter are hardcore NBA fans for the most part. Not a huge number of NBA fans spend their waking hours roaming through NBA Twitter and discussing hoops. And so earlier in the week, maybe two weeks ago at this point, I set out to try to find folks out in the world who weren't quite hardcore as basketball fans, but more casual fans, more perspective fans, and was able to engage them with a survey on a number of these topics. And then, you know, you get about, we had about 40 people take that survey from different different walks of life and you kind of get a perspective on their interests as fans and so on and so forth. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to, I'm going to tell you what that information is. I'm going to tell you those results. Okay. So you'll be able to hear what people are saying from different perspectives. It's not a, the world's most definitive sample in either case. We're not trying to uh, send a man to the moon here, but Instead of just looking at it from a single perspective or hearing what a a talking head on a network television show is telling you, the idea here is to actually look at fan feedback at different levels. There are different types of people who consume the NBA. And then within those levels, understand, okay, what are the real issues? What are the actual problems that uh, are plaguing either the fans or the league. I mean, they go together. It's the product and it's consumers. And then what are some possible solutions based on those problems? That's where we're going in this episode today. Um, And it's also fun just to give you a perspective of, you know, how things are designed and what it means to have an informed design. There are principles. There is a science behind trying to understand how someone uses the product, how someone actually engages with the NBA and the things they love and dislike and why they come and go and why they stay and all that stuff. And then creating a better experience for them. So I don't know if the NBA is doing it, but that's what we're going to do on the podcast today. The first big thing I noticed is about half of people didn't really have any complaints or issues at all with the NBA when prompted to share complaints and problems they had with the NBA in its game. 
So that's pretty good right out of the gate. I think that's something to keep in mind as sort of an orienting feature here. We don't have to solve problems that don't exist. And I'll come back to this a few more times in the things I want to discuss today because some of these things just aren't problems. And I think spending so much time on them does us a tremendous disservice in trying to bring more old fans back or indoctrinate newer fans or sort of appeal to casuals when you tune in. If I tune in to, I don't know, a new sport, I like curling in the Olympics. My uncle was a was a national champion level curler many years ago back in the 70s. And so I grew up understanding what curling was and uh, sometimes when it comes on in the Olympics, I, I enjoy it. I like to check it out. But if if they if I turned on curling and they know they have a prospective audience, right? They know they're trying to make the game accessible for people. And they do a pretty good job of that. But if I turned it on and they complained about all the infighting and all the rules and uh, the reasons why the brooms weren't the right brooms anymore, you know, they got these push brooms now and not the sweep brooms from the old days. And, you know, if they just spent all their time talking about it, not only would I not be able to learn about the game and understand why it's interesting, it is true, it's just a strategic game on ice um, where you get to, you know, sort of think about what you're going to do at every stage. Not only would I lose that, but it would be sort of a turnoff. So you have this double whammy. And I think as a more engaged hardcore audience, we notice that when it comes to the national broadcast. You know, the the latest one, of course, is load management. Uh, I did a podcast recently all about sort of the science and evolution of load management. And the second I finished that podcast, I tweeted, hey, I mistitled that podcast. That The reason why I did that and the interesting thing about that podcast to me was really about the evolution of offensive strategy in basketball and how the evolution of offensive strategy in basketball has demanded sort of evolved, more engaged player on the court, more cutting, more running, more jumping, um, not, not even to mention things about when they were younger in AAU. So that idea is sort of interesting from an historical evolution perspective. And when I look at it, it only has a positive lens. You know, I think the idea of letting fans know before the game that a superstar is not going to be there holds some water. I think that's a good idea. But in general, we're talking about a very small percentage of games that this affects and a small percentage of players. And they're essentially all injured players. They're coming back from injury. And yet we talk about it. It's discussed ad nauseum and it's talked about like these are just guys resting and lollygagging because they're from a soft pampered generation uh i mean not only is that sort of like generational warfare as a way to alienate old older fans and certainly you know people i've talked to in my life over the last few years who are in their 40s and 50s um the first stuff out of their mouth they are sports fans and the first stuff out of their mouths is, I don't watch the NBA much anymore. It's not awesome like it was back in the 80s and 90s. And when you press them on that, you know, they'll say the players were tougher, the games were tougher, uh, they were more skilled, they had more fundamentals. All of the things you hear about, you know, six feet of snow and walking to school uphill both ways. All that kind of stuff. So from a presentation perspective, we can do better and we can educate and focus on these things. And we'll talk about this in a, in a little bit in more detail, but 
next big takeaway is not only do many of these casual fans not have these complaints, they don't, no one mentioned the presentation and broadcasting of the game. No one mentioned the broadcasters. No one said, I want more Dor- Doris Burke. All of the hardcores on NBA Twitter, we all love Doris. And, of course, our mission is to get Doris on the Thinking Basketball podcast by reminding her that she should come on at every... No, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, or am I? I don't know. But the, a lot of the casuals don't necessarily see an issue with that because they aren't more inside the game like a lot of us um, who spend our time on NBA Twitter. So the the two big things that they sort of complained about were what I just ended up describing or tagging as game flow. That means a majority of comments about officiating or how long it takes or how many breaks there are or things related to replay breaks or the game starting late at night and then dragging, stuff like that. That is a, that is a more sort of casual fan, uh, maybe a local fan. Um, that, that perspective is something that's really challenging for their consumption of the game. About one in five people mention something related to game flow. And about one in six people, so you know, around 20%, around 15%, one in six people talked about the league, you know, the turnoffs for them where the league is too star-driven or, or focuses too much on big markets. Just the same kind of storyline, whether it's the Lakers or LeBron or whatever. Um, you know, that is something that I think for a contingency of casual fans, they either want more diversity or they want something that isn't the same kind of major market storyline over and over again okay so probably nothing nothing too new we've all heard this before but nice to get you know a a perspective or a snapshot um, from the horse's mouth itself another sort of interesting takeaway for me at a high level was there was a pretty strong correlation of relationship between whether the respondent was more interested in the draft and free agency and trade markets, all of that sort of like uh, transactional stuff that takes place on a team, roster roster overhauls and whatnot. There was a pretty strong relationship between being more interested in that and less interested in sort of the entertainment components like All-Star Game weekend. The All-Star Game and the things going on around the weekend and the three-point shot and the dunk contest. Less of an interest in things like inside the NBA which of course is much lighter on analysis and much heavier on humor and um, you know culture, jokes, things like that. So right away we can see that, and this is something that is always a challenge when you're trying to create a product or a service for a group of people, is that you have different fan profiles. Another really interesting takeaway for me was that the consumption patterns of these people, uh, and I would say based on the recruitment, these are most of these people are 18 to 30, or I guess 20, 21, 22 to 35, uh, realistically, because they're most of them are working in or connected through people in different companies and office buildings around America and mostly on the West Coast. But for those people who responded or were able to access this and respond, the unif- the the consumption patterns excuse me were incredibly uniform so you had a little bit more than a third of people um watching for about 
an hour a week or consuming some kind of NBA content for about an hour a week. You had about a third at three to six hours, and you had a little bit under a third at over six hours. If you look at how they were watching, how they're consuming the sport, you've got um, basically everyone, 30 to 45% of all ballots had um, watching games on TV, watching highlights on YouTube, watching uh, streams, listening to podcasts, even even reading articles in print and so or or digital articles i guess what do we what do we call that now just articles we'll just go with articles but uh, you know that was an extremely uniform distribution across all the respondents and so this idea that you know there's a very small group of people that only does x or um, most people are still watching through games i think is probably as outdated as we think it is on NBA Twitter, and that there are many ways to access the league. There are many points of engagement. A podcast is a particular type of engagement. Watching a, a YouTube highlight video is a particular kind of engagement that's even slightly different than watching a YouTube analysis video like you might get on Thinking Basketball YouTube channel. So those were some interesting high-level takeaways to me. A couple more before we lay out some problems and get to some solutions. Ooh, the fun stuff. It's what you're really here for. Um, about 40% of these respondents played fantasy basketball. What's interesting to me is, and this came from earlier research and conversations with folks, is I also asked them about fantasy football. And about two-thirds of them play fantasy football. So Rob Antle on Backpicks has an article for Patreon subscribers that we put up recently where we did a bunch of research on this. And one of the things that came out about that was that other fantasy sports are much healthier and stronger than fantasy basketball. Um, And he gets into some reasons why. But, I mean, it's very interesting. These are all people who watch basketball. Again, half of them don't even have complaints about basketball. They enjoy it. They like it. They engage with it in different forms. And yet, you know, more of them are playing fantasy football. By the way, the thing that they enjoyed the most wasn't free agency and trade rumors. It wasn't, you know, the draft. It wasn't off-court drama. Off-court drama, by the way, was the thing they enjoyed the least. It was great basketball games. That's the thing that they said they liked the most, the product, great basketball. I reached out to NBA Twitter with the question, you know, if you had a magic wand, what would you change about the league? And again, the first interesting thing to me is that a lot of people did not wave their wand to fix a hot button issue. You know, it's Twitter and people are joking and it's hard to say, but I mean, if you're engaging and responding and I give you a magic wand, in a way, I mean, if you have a problem that you really have with the league, now we're hardcore fans, but if you have a problem, that's the time to address it. And a lot of people were saying things that were a little you know, a little less uh, tangible or serious. Now, among the respondents, the number one thing on Twitter was about the broadcasting presentation. So give me more Doris Burke and less Van Gundy and Mark Jackson. Now, I don't know if that's the Twitter algorithm because I've talked about that recently, but that was the number one thing by a decent amount. That was on 20, 26% 
of people who came back with ideas had something to do with the broadcast presentation. We're talking about around 200 people who responded in this thread. The next biggest things were around changing the tournament structure, like reseeding or uh, changing, changing something to best of five. Officiating was also a big thing that came up along with the league pass and then certain things around the rules like, you know, a three shot foul or changing the three point line or widening the court or things like that. The rules really didn't come up at all with casual people, either in conversations that I've had in the last few weeks or in the survey that I sent out. League pass didn't come up with casual people or in the survey I sent out. So those are things that are a little bit, the idea of like changing the broadcast, changing league pass, and changing the rules are on the minds of more hardcore fans, but not casual fans. That doesn't mean that they wouldn't benefit the casual fans. So what do fans want? You know, there are different kinds of fans. There are fans who are hardcore fans, as we talked about. Some fans have that like gambling fantasy sport perspective. Um, Some fans are very sort of local rooting for laundry, the tribal, you know, can we overcome? Can we beat the bad guys, us versus them? And then, of course, you just have casual perspective fans who kind of like sports or competition, but often are interested in things like, you know, the human story. The hero's journey, David versus Goliath. So if we look right now at some of the proposals that are out there, the big proposals, we see things like uh, uh, play-in games. Um, The in-season tournament is the big one. That, of course, was uh, Jared Weiss's piece on the athletic that I mentioned. And so what what problem does the in-season tournament solve? That's an interesting question. I think ostensibly it solves something to do with making the middle of the regular season more interesting to get more eyeballs involved. I'm not sure if we look at our slate of problems that we're going to clearly continue to outline in the next few minutes. I'm not entirely sure if it actually hits any of the sweet spots. Something to consider. And then not only not only do we want to understand our major problems, but what are the keys to the problem for each user type? Like how does it impact the hardcore fan versus the casual fan versus the hometown fan? How does it hit those different user profiles? And then this doesn't happen in a vacuum. We need to also take into account the players. And then we need to take into account the business side, the league and its owners. So you have to balance all of these ideas. You have to look at the problems and then try to balance the solutions against those problems and against the different parties that are involved in this. And there are often solutions that are competing against each other. So the prime example is replay. Replay is two forces acting against each other when it comes to the problem space of the NBA fan experience right now. A lot of fans want replay to get the calls right. So that's the first motivation. How can we get the calls right? Let's go to replay. Another group of fans, sometimes they overlap, by the way, same people. Another group of fans wants the game flow to be better. They want the game to be faster. They don't want all these stops and reviews and the call isn't changed half the time and it mucks up the entire experience. You're sitting there and it's just terrible. And again, sometimes those are the same people. So these are competing forces. On one hand, you want to get it right. And on the other hand, you want the game to go faster. 
What about ticket prices? That's another example. The fans want to pay less. The players and the league want more because they want more revenue. So obviously you you need to find a balance in something like that. Another example is load management. Done a podcast about it, won't belabor it, but you've got this idea of short-term gratification versus long-term health. Do you want to see a guy play better for longer or do you want him to play now and risk a higher chance of injury, risk a higher chance of not being around in the playoffs when the stakes are higher? Okay, let's get into let's get into some problems and solutions. So based on the conversations I've had, everything I've read just beforehand that you you all have all probably read as well. And then based on this survey result, small survey, but interesting to kind of get a different slice, and based on talking to people on NBA Twitter this week, here are seven key problems and possible solutions for each. And then at the end, we'll sort of we'll sort of wrap them together because some of them fold into each other very heavily. You have these competing forces working against each other. So first key problem is cut out the meaningless games during the season. This is one that I think impacts uh, both the casual fans and the hardcore fans. But yes, 9% of casual fans looking at the results here, 9% of casual fans in the survey said that the season was too long. 14% of fans on NBA Twitter commented on that. And I, I think it's a little larger among that hardcore audience because it is an exhausting marathon when you are fully engaged in it. But the idea here is to cut out the meaningless games, make the product more must-see TV, and this will drive ratings and drive revenue. And for those of us who are in it every day, maybe give us a little bit more of a reprieve. Of course, the fans are going to win with this one because in theory they'll get a better product on the court every night if you can make those games more engaging and more meaningful and all that. By the way, a lot of people didn't complain about load management. It wasn't a huge issue. So I think there are non-issues or non-problems that, you know, again, are getting way too much focus in the conversation. And it would also help with load management to have a better a better term. You know, we're talking about something that impacts less than 5% of all games, even if we're generous with how many games Kawhi and Chris Stapps and Joel Embiid are going to miss and all that. So the obvious solution here to this one that so many people have recommended is to cut out the meaningless games and create more must-see TV. You shorten the schedule. We'll come back to this in a few minutes when we integrate it with some of the other problems. Issue number two has to do with game dynamics. That is things like there are too many three-pointers. And, you know, the style of the game isn't right. Well, I have to say that this didn't really come up at all talking to most people. So I would give this as an example of another... I'm kind of pulling the carpet out from under you here by having this as problem number two. I don't really think this is a problem. Not me personally, just based on what I'm hearing from people by by percentage, by volume, people don't actually seem to, the non-hardcores, it didn't come up at all. So people actually don't seem to be viewing this as a problem with the product. 
obviously some people think it's a problem, but I don't really think it's a a pressing issue um, because you know seventy five threes a game might might really turn people off, but thirty five or even forty doesn't necessarily seem to turn them off based on everything else that's going on the court. Right now, as of recording this in the 2020 season, it's 38% of all shots. 38% of all shots are three-pointers. And so we've gone a little bit past uh, a two-to-one ratio for two-point field goal attempts to three-point field goal attempts. And the more important takeaway here, I think, having so few, I mean, zero basically casual people ever bring this up with the three-point shooting is that as long as you don't have monotony I think the Rockets get more uh, flack about this because there's monotony they do the same thing over and over again and there's less movement but the issue isn't just about threes versus twos if you have transition basketball if you have fast breaks if you have motion if you have drive and kick and pull up threes that get you there but you also have plays at the rim you have maybe an occasional post up you have a little mid-range I don't think the casual fan gets too bogged down by whether you take 25 threes a game or 40. And the younger fan, with the younger fan, it's all they know. Remember that. That's all a younger fan knows is a lot of threes. So I think you could have a problem if you get, you know, twice as many threes as twos, or if the game is very monotonous. Different styles of different teams also probably helps the product, just from what we know about diversity of consumption and kind of... uh, history of exciting athletics that kind of thing but any solution here whether it's the the three-point shot uh, shrinking the lane widening the court um, I think these are solutions that are going to be put into place by the hardcore kind of fan to make the product even better for the casual fan without the casual fan thinking about it and that's fine but you have to be careful to try to fix something that isn't broken. It may be broken in a couple years if we get to 73s a game. But whatever that solution is, it should be easy to understand. And it shouldn't it shouldn't create more friction tuning into a game that you haven't seen in a year or two and going, why are there all those lines on the court? But that actually doesn't seem to be too big of a pressing solution. I would be uh, extremely hard-pressed to find any evidence or information that that's the reason why ratings are down. The product itself seems very good up and down the board. Most people you talk to, maybe with the exception of some older fans, everyone seems to like the product right now. So then that gets us into issue number three, which I think is a viable thing, and that's game flow. Game flow. 8% of NBA Twitter mentioned game flow, and this was the most common casual response, as I said earlier. And the big one here is that replay slows down the game and it takes forever. But also the timeouts as well. And this one seems like low-hanging fruit to me. Because you start the game on time, you get it over earlier, you kill most of the officiating reviews. Now, as I say that, there's a philosophical question here. Is the cost of replay worth the benefit of fixing a call? Think, think about that for a second, and then we'll come back to it. Because I think there's some other low-hanging fruit here, which is you could do something like reducing the number of timeouts in the game by one. Um, you could create an additional, you know, you could take away a full timeout, create another 60, uh, 20-second timeout. 
You could even flip your timeouts from, you know, instead of 75 seconds for a full timeout, there's 60 seconds. There's other things you can do to try to gain a couple minutes of game flow when it comes to all these timeouts. And the league a couple years ago said you only get two timeouts in the final three minutes. That was a great step. The challenge for the league and its players is they want revenue from the TV timeouts. So it's hard to take out the TV timeouts that are in the course of the game, and those TV timeouts pad for uh, player rest. Now, one possible solution to kind of land in the middle there would be to have more in-game advertising like soccer. So you could have a stretch of the first quarter. The first quarter scoreboard could be brought to you by an ad sponsor. You know, they already have the little... um, on underneath the scores table they already have ads sometimes that rotate throughout the game there but if you wanted to have more advertising but better game flow that would be another possible way to do it you could like i said you could have the 75 second timeout be 60 seconds another idea this one this one from a patron subscriber patreon subscriber patreon.com slash thinking basketball chris sullivan he suggested just reviewing the flagrant fouls way less or changing how you do that. So possible ideas here to speed up the game would be have the league office review the flagrant foul in the background and not the officials courtside, and then you can handle it later on. However, that would work. It wouldn't be, you know, again, I'm not trying to boil the ocean in this podcast. This is a shrunken down miniature snapshot of how to design a more perfect league. So I don't know the the true answer, but that would be a way potentially to save a minute or two or three sometimes during a quarter, keep the game flow, and at the next break or the end of the quarter, just like they do the three-point shot reviews now at the end of the quarter, you could say, oh, we've deemed that a flagrant, the player gets assessed a flagrant, and you could get awarded your extra possession or two free throw, whatever, whatever the whatever the foul was, you could have some penalty. Um, and I think changing the penalty on a flagrant slightly would be beneficial if it gets us, you know, three minutes every time a flagrant review happened. Or however, I don't know the numbers on flagrant reviews. I do know that the game time has gone from under two and a half hours to under two twenty. Another possible solution that has been mentioned is this idea of the two two free throws into one shot. So you take one shot if you have a two-shot foul, and if you make it, it's worth two points, and if you miss it, you, you miss it, and that's it. You only got the one shot. And I think the biggest problem with this is actually it takes away some some natural player rest, and so it's more taxing on the players. And so when we go back and we think about how these things impact different fans the league and its owners, and the players, things that are going to push too hard on one of those three stakeholders, essentially, is something that may not be a viable solution. And I think, you know, shorter rest, compact the game, make it more stressful, uh, take away the player's rhythm or whatever, uh, I think that's something that may not be worth the extra 15 seconds on the free throws. Now, there are a lot of free throws, but that's the point. That's a lot of rest that gets taken out in the course of the game. It's one thing to not extend the game with all these new officiating reviews. 
it's one thing to you have five timeouts instead of seven or your timeouts are 60 seconds instead of 100 but this is you know dozens and dozens of free throws over the course of the game which is natural in basketball at every level and to take out all that time might be taking out too much rest okay now let's talk about officiating that is issue number four so thus far we have covered uh, meaningless regular season games game dynamics like you know too many threes I don't think is an issue game flow clearly is an issue for a lot of people especially casual fans especially fans at the end of games you know a number of people just say like they don't need so many timeouts one person said in tennis you know you don't get to interact with your coaches at all it would it's okay to have a little bit more independence for the players I agree with that I don't know why we need so many timeouts So we got that. Now the officiating. The officiating is one where both hardcore and casual fans sort of intersect and have similar complaints. And I think this is for a very good reason. Because when you have a sport where, let's just say for the sake of argument, let's round it to an even number, 5% of all calls are wrong. That means you are going to get a handful and perhaps a double-digit number of calls that are wrong in every game. You are also very likely to get a call or two that is wrong at the end of the game when things are magnified from a storytelling perspective, the replay, you know, all the replays are there, the fans are charged up, it's the end of the night, gambling stuff is on the line for people at the end of the game. That's when, you know, the chickens come home to roost. And so you've got 5% of your calls being wrong. You're just going to get that naturally. The question is a philosophical one. Do you want to replay more and more calls to get more and more calls right and get closer to perfect while sacrificing all of the time and breaking up the game flow? Think about it. I don't know the answer. It's a philosophical question. There are serious diminishing returns on replay, and we can see that. We can go to replay, and we can see all the calls that are difficult or questionable. And so this idea of let's just get it right is a pipe dream. Because there are always going to be calls in basketball that have some ambiguity, even if it's 2% of calls or 1% of calls. And so you have major diminishing returns with where refs are in real time versus you add in, let's say you got to, to replay 20 calls a game, which sometimes it feels like we're at now. You may go from 94% to 97% or 95% to 98% or whatever it is. But you don't get up to 100% even with 20 replays. And it would be very hard to get 100% with all re- with replaying every single play on the court over and over again looking for some kind of call or non-call. And so I think this is a philosophical question that the league now should probably take a stand on, which is, what is the is that cost worth the benefit? What do we actually get from going from 95% to 97%. There are other things, by the way, with the officiating that most people discussed. I shouldn't make it sound like it's just replay. The other things that come up constantly, um, jumping into players for free throws on you know jumpers, up fake and three-shot foul, that kind of thing. A lot around the three-shot three foul. Of course, John Hollinger wrote that great piece over the, at, the, at The Athletic recently. Um, the rip through moves, the leg kicks, kind of any flopping, accentuating behavior on drives or touch fouls, traveling rules are bothersome to a lot of fans. 
we're up to like five steps i think i <laughs> i can't keep track anymore um listeners and people who know my work over the years historically know that i don't really have a particular bias for any era's rules per se i just like to acknowledge how the rules influence the play in each era and how they changed the way guys could and would play basketball. And with what's happening with sort of the gathers and the hops and the Euro step, the purity of the Euro step, if you will, the idea of like a, a Manu Ginobili, I pick up my dribble and then I go one direction and then I go the other direction. And I do that in a fluid move. I don't think that offends everyone's sensibilities. I think most people are okay with that. But I do think there is a contingent of fans, not just all old fans either, that do get a little confused. I mean, my YouTube videos, that is a much younger audience. This is not like we're talking about um, guys born in the 50s, 60s, and 70s who are heavily consuming YouTube. That's a younger audience. And I see comments on travels on plays constantly you know how is that not a travel at two minutes and 32 seconds so i think there's a middle ground there i think there's a middle ground with flopping as well you know people there's a difference between accentuating a call in basketball and you know not like it's not martial arts you're not resisting someone's momentum every time you make contact with them versus faking it you know the, the arm swings through and there was no contact, but you hurl yourself backwards to the floor. So a lot of fans want to see that kind of flopping uh, behavior punished and punished more severely. They want traveling to be a little bit more reined in, like the traditional Eurostep might be okay, but when you get five steps on the gather, then hop one way, then hop the other way, then do a step back, then flop, then get three free throws, it's like, uh, it, it offends the sensibilities of a lot of fans at different levels. Those things can be addressed without dealing with the replay rule. Those are just rules. Banning the charge is another one that came up a lot. That one's a little bit more hardcore. Um, I don't know how much casual fans understand the ramifications or injuries about what's happening at the basket, but Nate Duncan gave a great uh, Sloan talk last year, Sloan MIT conference, out, outlining some of the data on these collisions and his solution, which I've really come to like, is just move the charge circle out, get rid of the get rid of the collisions under the basket. So these are all things we can do from the officiating perspective uh, to help make the fan experience better. Now, I also think there is an issue about education when it comes to NBA officials. Fans have no idea how good NBA officials are. Most of these people, most of us, I really should say, you know, I'm in this I'm in this group as well. We don't watch college basketball. I don't watch high school basketball anymore. Go watch college basketball. The NBA refs are way better. Go watch high school basketball. The college refs are way better than high school refs. So, NBA refs are all things being equal really good at their job. If we took a lot of other people off the street and we trained them up and we enlarged the talent pool a little bit, NBA refs, in my opinion, would not get much better. They're good at their job. It's just a job that inherently has a small miss rate. 
and that will always be magnified. There's always going to be uh, unclear, controversial calls. It's a fluid sport. So I think this gets back to that idea of educating, you know, what we present as part of the broadcast, educating fans on these kinds of things. I would love to see the referees have little cameras. And if you can't get the camera resolution good enough, that's fine. Just use one of the baseline cameras near the ref who made the call or whatever. But the idea is to have a camera from the perspective of the official who makes the call and then have a segment or two randomly throughout every telecast on every game called, and again, I'm just making this up. The exact solution doesn't have to look like this, but it's called You Make the Call. That's what the segment is. And it's a video clip from the perspective of the official looking at the play where he just made a call or didn't make a call that was that was you know a potential call to be made and instead of slow-mo replay and super slow-mo replay from 18 different angles you only get the full speed replay from that official's perspective and then you ask the fans in like an interactive poll make the call block charge whatever it is And the idea here is that if you can make it fun and you can make it interactive, hopefully after a while, fans will see how difficult it is to make some of these calls. And there's always going to be a small miss rate. And I think this part of the education around the sport has just been missing in my entire lifetime. And my entire lifetime has been filled with, and people I know personally and family members included in this statement, who think the league is rigged. And I think the league probably is, is, there's such a stigma that they want to shy away from that, that they don't go here. But, I mean, this is part of the sport to me. And I think it's A, if you've ever tried to officiate, it's incredible how good some of these NBA officials are and how they have their P's and Q's buttoned up. But there are so many calls. through. It's, it's not that they don't get calls wrong that the rest of us can see more clearly because they're out of position or they have fatigue, or they have a bias from a previous play or player or whatever. Those things can happen. But I think people just in general don't understand that there's an inherent miss rate. And if you could do that, and you could you could run this make the call segment, and then come back, you know, after the poll is done and show 18 different slow motion replays, that from a cognitive perspective, uh, that will help a certain group of fans realize like wow um this is really hard to get right even you know remotely consistently sometimes some of these close calls are really really hard and to me that's an alternative to replaying the game 25 times issue number five let's move on issue number five i just called this hometown despair and this is really the idea that that teams are less national in their rooting interests or They haven't really, there's not an inherent love of the X's and O's and strategy and aesthetic to the degree that they will watch beyond their hometowns. You know, the the fair weather, if you will, the idea that if the team is um, struggling or stuck, you know, they can't get out of the hole, that they're less likely to be engaged. They may watch a little bit, but they're less likely to be engaged. They want a good team. This is a no-brainer, right? Understandable. But I'm not sure how many people this really turns off other than just if your local team's awesome, you get more people to huddle around the couch with you or something. 
And all, you know, so many of the things in the league around like lottery odds and the rules and the salary cap and um, they're designed to try to create a more equal playing field. So if you are a small market struggling team, you can be better. But the challenge then, of course, is you have things like, well, then you start to tank or sure, there's a salary cap, but you won't spend. We will we'll get to this in a second when we get to some of the larger solutions. Um, issue number six was around what I would just call the broadcast experience. But again, this was really only among hardcores. This was something that came up constantly on Twitter. But I think if you look at some of the problems and what people are saying, this gets back into education or focus on other issues. So if the broadcast focused on the game and its strengths... Maybe less, you know, you'd hear less stuff from people like, oh, players these days, they don't know the fundamentals. Or all they do is shoot threes. If the broadcast focused on the officiating challenges, maybe there would be less controversy around how bad the refs are and how it's all rigged. If the broadcast focused on new skills and talents that have been developed and techniques, how the pick and roll and how it's being attacked and defending it and the, the rise of the Eurostep and why, you know, deceleration and change of direction matter and, and can help someone overcome a lack of straight line speed or, you know, vertical leap or something like that. If you, if you could present the game in that way, maybe you'd spend less time worrying about load management or interpreting load management as a matter of, you know, rest, just resting just taking time off or however it's however it's presented. Um, if the broadcast focused more on that kind of in-game strategy, then maybe you would just inherently have less of a, of a feeling of, well, the re- these regular season games don't matter. Players play... I've watched the NBA for a long time. It was like three decades for me of hardcore NBA fandom. And guys used to not really work out that much in the summer and they'd they'd sort of round themselves back into shape as the season began players today work out a lot in the summer they work with their trainers they try to put something in their game they try to add athleticism we've got more technology and they're in shape year-round and some of these early regular season games are played at a very high intensity level this wasn't super common even 15 years ago and now, I mean, we haven't even played a month. We've we played a little over a month, I guess. And, I mean, I've seen a handful of games already. That Celtics-Clippers game um, recently in Los Angeles. But there's been a couple more where you just have, like, a playoff intensity. You don't have the scheming. You don't have the strategizing. But the players are going very hard. And the games are being played at a fairly high level. Uh, and coaches sometimes even rolling out little wrinkles because of analytics and because of the information we systems that we have that allow them to prepare before a game. And they say, yeah, I know it's a Tuesday night and it's a regular season game, but I want you to start blitzing and trapping that ball handler in the pick and roll in the second half. Let's see what happens. This is great stuff. And yet, and people love the product. And so I think the idea that the regular season doesn't matter, um, which of course is harmful to that we want more people to watch and have meaning in the regular season. If the broadcast focused on these things and focused on strategy, maybe you would have a, a ripple effect where regular season games don't feel meaningless. Some possible solutions here that I've seen 
proposed NFL film style miking up the sidelines. This could be sidelines, could be practice, just that whole miked up concept. More in the locker room. Um, this gives access to players for you know more human angles and I think checks multiple boxes for fans. Then you could go another level. I love this one. Not sure it could ever happen. Mic up the court. Mic up all the players on the court. Get boom mics on the court. Whatever it is, uh, if you could get it through, the idea that we could hear calls, we could hear communication, we could hear trash talking, you could pay extra money. You could have a revenue stream from the league's perspective where people would buy an add-on where they get the uncensored, you know, on-court microphone access. And that appeals to data guys. That appeals to X's and O's film guys. That appeals to, uh, you know, just even the casual who wants to see the trash talking or what people are saying or the more the human element of competition sometimes. And we've seen the success with this in NFL films, which has been an incredible venture and brought just some of the best sports content that we've seen in the last like four or five decades using this model. The candid nature of some of the talk. So I love that. Mike up the sidelines, Mike up the court. Another one, um, and I can't tell if he was joking, <laughs> was have velocity data during the game. You know, track the speed of a player, track how fast they're running on a fast break, how high they jump. The one I really liked was the speed of passes. You could start to get some register of guys who threw fastballs. And this is this is one of those fun American baseball pastime data points where I don't think it will be inherently bucketed into the analytics boogeyman. You know, no one thinks about analytics when they talk about Nolan Ryan throwing 99 miles an hour. And it's the same thing in basketball. It's helpful to understand speed of passing is a relative and critical component of passing. And the more data you have on that, and plus, you know, not only is it helpful, but it just shines a light on another sort of beautiful X's and O's component of the game that often gets overshadowed. We used to get overshadowed by sports center dunks and blocks, and now I feel like it's getting overshadowed by you know, barbershop talk around load management. So I really like these. Another fun one that I that I thought was very interesting just to throw out there because it's fun, you know, humanize the players, make the game fun, is uh, note the different kinds of shoes players have in the starting lineup. It could, doesn't have to be shoes. It doesn't have to be the starting lineup. But that would be an interesting kind of quirky collection. Basketball has always been memorabilia driven and sort of like you know the shoes and the shorts and the fashion and all that stuff and having a little bit more of an interplay with that for fans might be really interesting again you could make it a tie-on or um, tie it to some other experience that you could purchase that gets us to the elephant in the room league pass league pass is as someone who has worked in designing a lot of technology apps for years it is i don't have words for how bad it is it was only brought up by the way by the hardcores people on nba twitter but the entire i'm not going to sit here and design at the screen level but i mean that entire experience just even the technology it's it's glitchy it breaks down i don't know what technology stack they're running it on but it is not the right one (laughs) 
But you can have add-on. You can you can connect League Pass to the experience in a richer way. So some people have said, I want an older library of games that I can access. Well, that's that's a basic one. But what about something like commentary channels? Again, this was another great recommendation from Twitter. What if you had commentary channels? And so if you looked at that like in-game commentary style that Nate Duncan and Danny LaRue do um, on the NBA cast show where they they sit and they comment on a game. What if you had part of your experience was on League Pass, you could also access amateur or open source commentary. And so there's a feed, there's an in-arena feed that goes out anyway that is the game sound from watching the game. And then instead of hearing... Whoever's calling the game, Mike Breen and Mark Jackson and Jeff Van Gundy, you could, as an option, click on to uh, someone who's open source calling the game, and you could watch their coverage of the game as well. Things like that. Number of people, just a, a small final thing, number of people have talked about the in-arena in experience. I think this also seems like possibly low-hanging fruit um, because, like, they don't have an in-arena game app. Someone said, I, they don't even have an in-game app where I can order my concessions from. I was surprised. I, I mean, I'm not going to games in 30 arenas here. I only pretty much have access to the Staples Center. Is that really a thing? Do, does no one have in-game apps to order confessions? I'm sure one of you, someone, someone let me know. One of you must know this. But that you could make the in-game app experience so much richer. So even within the arena, and this gets back to education about the sport, when I've gone to games and sat in the stands, I'm blown away at how many light shows there are at every 20-second timeout. So one one suggestion that, suggestion that I really liked was, why don't they show highlights of other games going on up on the big board? I'll take it a step further. Why don't they have commentary? Why isn't there an in-arena commentary team like the starters who are now no dunks, you know, like a group of guys or even an individual or whatever, who during the night of basketball is designed to create little content for all the timeouts for all the other fans in the league about what's going on in other arenas. So-and-so is working on a triple-double. Luca and LeBron have gone back and forth for the last four minutes. Um, it was a 22-point lead for the Knicks, and now Portland has come back. It was a 31-point lead for the Knicks, and now Portland has come back. How did the Knicks get a 31-point lead? I mean, these are all things that could be basketball-centric, exciting, you know, driving different things and points of engagement. You could put it on the big screen. You could have other add-ons in an app, stuff like that. In-game experience. I mean, you could engage fans on strategy questions during the game. Team calls a timeout. You could put a strategy question up on the big board. Should someone sub back in? Should so-and-so be out with four fouls? Um, you know, even even feedback questions. What did you think of so-and-so's play in the first quarter? You could, you could have that interactive component and have fans on their phones, on their in-game app, voting in real time, and the results go up on the arena scoreboard. So to wrap it up, and it's funny because, you know, for a podcast around an hour of me just talking is a long time, but for this process, this is the kind of thing we would do 
for a business over the course of weeks or months. So I'm giving a very compressed version of this idea of identifying the problems that are actually problems, identifying who they're problems for. Are they problems for the players, the league, or the fans? And those things often go together. And then trying to understand based on the problems, can we have solutions that check the most boxes and don't compete? These competing forces are a challenge. So if we come full circle, it, it may be more reasonable to handle game flow and how long it takes to play a game and when it starts. It may be a lot easier to say, hey, we can, we can legislate certain rules differently. We can help make sure the officials are supported in a different way. We can change the broadcasting experience pretty easily as well without conflicting with too much or the in arena experience. But can we go back to those other problems we talked about earlier? Can we cut out the meaningless regular season games, also give weaker teams hope, at the same time incentivize them not, not to tank, please no tanking, not overly burden the players physically, and not lose a bunch of revenue for the league? Because that's basically where we're, that's where we're at. And again, this is the second biggest sport in the world. It's done very well. I'm not sure how long-term or real the ratings dip is right now because, you know, the Warriors are not there anymore. A number of players are injured. The league put a bunch of baskets in Zion for the National League uh, national TV schedule. So I'm not sure. I think you don't need to overreact to that is what I'm saying unless it's a trend that continues longer. But if we kind of look at the margins, if we say, how can we design a more perfect NBA? I think that's the hardest one. Cutting out the meaningless games, weaker teams hope, incentives not to tank, don't overly burden the players, and don't lose too much revenue. Let me go through some of the best ideas I saw in all this feedback and research, and then we'll wrap it up. Every game in the standings that a team is up counts for a point to start a playoff series. So this means if you are the one seed and you have a 1-8 structure and you won 55 games and the eight seed won 41 games, you would get a 14-point boost in a single game. Or it could be a cap. You could cap it at seven points or something like that. But the idea is to try to tie the regular season performance to something that you can use in the playoffs. In other words, you don't completely reset the score like in tennis. You get to carry some of that value over. And, and maybe you could choose which game. Maybe that would be cool. You could, you could have an option where the coach choose or the team chooses which game they want to use their standings points. Let's call them standings points. So you get into the second round series. In the second round series, you won 57 games and you're the one seed. And the four seed won 52 games. You have five standings points. That means you get to pick a game in that series where you start 5 nothing. Something like that. Something where you can connect regular season performance to the playoffs. And you add a strategy wrinkle that's not complex. It's, that's really basic. Another option in the same vein, maybe trying to have something where every month counts. You can win, a, you can win something valuable based on your performance in the month. So... You win a month in the standings, and you have benefits. For instance, did you have the best record in January? Okay. 
your reward is that you get two game points to be used before any playoff game of a series of your choosing. Or standings, what was I calling those? Standings points? But just more things that connect performance in the regular season to the postseason, and you could do it by month. You could say, until the new year, we're not going to touch this. And then starting in January, January, February, and March, those are your rewards months. And we got to figure out the last two weeks of April because that's when basketball really goes off the rails. Okay, but we can use the same logic and figure that out. What about on the tanking side? How about starting in January, you look at, uh, I don't know, five teams. You look at the bottom five teams in the league. Uh, You could figure it out. It could be four or six. I don't know. And then you say, all right, you qualify this month to be in the, you know, you can get a tanking bonus. You wouldn't, don't call it a tanking bonus. (laughs) Do not call it a tanking bonus. I don't know what you call it, but you look at the bottom five teams and you say the team that has the best record among the bottom five teams gets more ping pong balls or better lottery odds or whatever the reward is. I've seen people say, how about multi-year calculations for the lottery? That would also work to disincentivize tanking. So the way I see it, there are two big challenges with tanking when it comes to incentives. One is rewarding winning teams hurts weaker teams. You don't want to constantly reward teams that are better than the worst team or that worst team's going to get deeper and deeper and deeper in a hole. And rewarding weaker teams potentially helps a better team if they choose to tank or injure or they don't choose to injure. That was a, hmm, this is what happens when I talk too long. Um, Let me try that again. If they have an injury or they choose to tank. So if you could do something multi-year, I think that would be even better. And you you insulate yourself against some of those concerns. So for instance, let's say you look at the three-year history of a team or a two-year history of a team, and you say, look, you've been a losing team for two consecutive years. You now trigger, you are now eligible for bonus incentives that other teams aren't because you haven't been bad for two or three straight years. It's almost like bonus shares. So you've unlocked your bonus shares, okay? In order to activate them now, you have to win. So go back to that idea I said earlier. You finished in the lottery the last two years. You're in the bottom five of teams. It's New Year's Day. If you win the month of January, you get more ping pong balls. If you win the month of January, you get, I don't know, uh, someone recommended you get more cap space. I kind of like that idea. You get an extra million dollars in cap space next year and or better draft odds. I don't know what the exact solution is. But something like this, to me, addresses those competing forces in a a way that um, offsets both of them instead of having them constantly work against each other. A number of people also suggested yearly limits of losing before ousting owners. Um, I don't know how reasonable that is, but I I think it makes some sense in a long-term perspective if you say, okay, after seven years of losing the team goes up for sale or something. Because if you could put in these other structures and incentives to help teams from really being uh, bad for a long time, then you would have to think that as an owner, you get sort of a shelf life. This isn't like a free market business. You You are part of a structure, which is the league. And I think there's some, you could argue there's some 
responsibility, fiduciary responsibility, I don't know what you'd call it, but there's some responsibility to fans that your owner is, uh, if not smart, at least willing to spend, but hopefully smart, hopefully not stubborn. You know, that's a challenge I think teams have with these owners that become frustrating after a while. So I'm not married to any of these ideas. I'm just throwing them all out there. Uh, I think the last one I just mentioned is sort of similar to uh, what Zach Lowe mentioned in his article this week about a tiering system. I don't know how much I love the tiering system, but the general idea here is we want to incentivize regular season performance at the top, and we want to incentivize regular season uh, wins or performance or trying or something at the bottom. And of course, we have to do this by helping teams who stink. We want to create parity. We want to create hope. We want kinds. Of, we don't want teams to be stuck in the mud. You don't want to be penalized six or seven or eight years for a decision that a regime made, you know, last year. When you move from the regular season to the playoffs, uh, most of these were only proposed by people on Twitter. I don't know how many casual fans are turned off by the playoff format, but I think you can help create excitement and engagement with more fun playoff setups. Many people suggested going back to the best of five first round. Not only do I think that would make a lot of sense, and help to create the potential of upsets and possible upsets, which is very exciting for more casual fans. It, it is less exciting for people like me, but uh, I'm not the target audience here. It's more, it's more exciting for casual fans to get those upsets. But I also think that works with some other idea about making the regular season bleed into the postseason. You get some those standings points ideas I was alluding to, where you, now you start putting things together. So you insulate really great teams. If you want to be really, really great, um, then you get a little bit more protected. You've got your home court. It's a shorter series, but you got your standings points, whatever it is. But if you're a weaker team, you can still play in the regular season and have a shot. The regular season matters. I don't know. I like doing something like this at the at every round of the playoffs. You know, Really reward the regular season performance against other high-level teams. Because if you're, you know, 60 wins instead of 58 wins, and you could do something like this, those two extra points might be something you really want to play in the NBA Finals. So that's it. I hope this was an interesting exercise or perspective. This is how uh, we would typically do this within a company if we want to understand what the problems are and how we can improve the product or the service. And the great thing about where we are in basketball right now is the on-court product seems to be the least of everyone's issues. And I think some of the things that are being talked about are overblown. But more engagement in the regular season could absolutely drive uh, better TV results, better engagement. You could connect the performance of the regular season into the playoffs, if, as we have discussed with things like standings points. or I mean, I'm sure you could come up with other ways, but the idea is to try to carry over a reward from the regular season. On the flip side, you could do better at identifying weaker teams who are just tr like truly struggling weaker teams over a two or three year period, and then try to create hooks that are reasonable to achieve where you say like, okay, if there are four really bad teams, then yes, we're actually going to reward the team who's the best among those four or who tries the hardest and has some kind of regular season success. I think in more good news is that the rules and the game dynamics and three point shots and all that, those don't seem to be a big issue officiating and game flow and replay 
those do. And I think those are more reasonable to address without getting into, uh, you know, economics and uh, tanking pressures and incentivizing teams to win and lose and things like that. Of course, Patreons always support this podcast. They made this thing possible in the first place. So if you have complaints, it's with the Patreon supporters who urged me to do a podcast and, and start recording myself talking about all kinds of issues, basketball. Um, I'm totally joking. Those guys are incredible. Patreon.com slash thinking basketball. If you want to sign up over there, you can get access to some of the additional articles that I mentioned, proprietary stats, so on and so forth. And that is it. I'm very interested to hear your thoughts on this kind of very special uh, thinking basketball podcast. Otherwise, I will talk to you in the next episode. And of course, I hope that you are all having a great day.